candidate under care, what they call a pastoral candidate in our presbytery, meaning that even though I'm 54 years old, uh, I've worked in the business world for over 30 years, I'm preparing uh, formally to uh, test my gifts and calling through the church to see whether God's calling me to do pastoral work full time as a teaching elder. So you're helping me by getting this experience as well. So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, in a moment, I'll ask you to look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 uh, with me. And that begins on page 1174 of the Bibles provided. Uh, we live in a time of great expectations, um, generally speaking, but perhaps this time of year, especially as we come to the end of the year. Uh, many Christians observe this as the first Sunday in Advent. Um, have you ever thought about how much your expectations about the future shape your experience of the present? I studied economics in college in a previous century. And one of the economic concepts that has stuck with me is a theory by American economist Milton Friedman. He developed a theory in the 1950s in which he answers the question, which influences household spending more, current income or expected income? And according to Friedman, increased household income itself does not cause increased household spending unless that increase in income is understood as representing a long-term change. So for example, if you find some money on the street or you receive a one-time bonus or you otherwise get income that you believe will be temporary, that doesn't really change your uh, current life. But if you receive an expectation about the future in, of your income that is maybe represented by a salary increase or a wage increase, um, that Permanent change influences the way you live now. Perhaps you'll spend more on housing and entertainment and clothing, for example. Let's think about some more personal examples. Uh, perhaps you can remember a time of great anxiety as you tried to prepare for an upcoming exam that you knew would be difficult in school. Or maybe when you were dreading the report the doctor would give you about a certain medical condition. Or perhaps you remember a time when the Human Resources Department suddenly scheduled a meeting with you that had no clear subject. And there are happier examples as well. Uh, think of the anticipation you feel on Christmas Eve, or when a beloved family member or friend pulls up into your driveway, or the moments as you walk across the stage just before you receive your diploma or special award. What you anticipate and expect about the future definitely and profoundly impacts the way you live now and how you experience the present. In today's sermon passage, God wants to change the way we, his people, experience the present by shaping our expectations about the future. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-18, God offers a profound hope to all who trust in his Son. Hope about our own lives and destinies, but also the destinies of all believers by presenting what we should confidently expect about the future. So please turn with me now to 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. Again, that's on page 1174 of the Bibles provided. Follow along silently, and then I ask you to keep your Bibles open so that you can engage with the passage as I preach about it. This is the English Standard Version. Hear now the word of God. 
But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. Would you fill us with profound expectation about what you will do to us and in the world through your Son. Lord, give us conviction of sin and great courage as we engage with your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul's original audience in the church at Thessalonica encountered a question common to most, if not all of us here today at one point or another. What will happen to Christians when Jesus returns? And Paul's concern in this part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is to address this question so that the Christians' anxieties about death, and particularly about the death of loved ones in Christ, would be transformed by a confident, realistic, and life-changing hope about the future that God has promised. As for specific circumstances that prompted Paul to write our sermon text, some in the Thessalonian church wondered whether and how deceased Christians would benefit from the return of Christ. Paul apparently had not had an opportunity to teach them previously about what happens to Christians who die. And the apostle wants to protect the congregation from unnecessary, excessive grief about the death of fellow church members. As we gather from verse 13, if you look at it, the Thessalonians were grieving the deaths of their brothers and sisters in Christ, but they were grieving as others do who have no hope, as Paul puts it. They were grieving as unbelievers do about the deaths of their fellow Christians. Paul may have detected that worldly beliefs about death were influencing the church's understanding of death for the Christian. Like our own secular Western culture, Greco-Roman culture indeed offered little expectation of hope beyond the present life. There was not a future for the body in the pagan world's understanding. Instead, it was considered to be a prison of the soul. And as for the soul, it was considered by some philosophies to enter at death into a dismal realm of existence in which the dead long for their previous life on earth. Other philosophies of the first century Roman Empire held that the soul simply ceases to exist, perhaps comparable to modern non-Christian ideas about death. But the Christian view of death is markedly different. Our Westminster Confession says that the bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, that is decay, but their souls have an immortal subsistence. That means they continue to exist forever. The souls of the righteous are received into the highest heavens, where they wait for the full redemption of their bodies. 
and the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved for the judgment of the great day. It's significant that Paul did not tell the Thessalonians to stop grieving entirely about those who died, or that grieving is somehow inherently sinful. Rather, he wanted them to grieve about the present with a sure hope in the bodily resurrection that awaits every believer in Christ. How about you, friend? Are you grieving this morning? Perhaps, like those Paul is addressing here, you are grieving over the death of a Christian family member, Christian friend, or other brothers or sister in Christ. Perhaps you're not. But if you are not grieving for such, such a loved one now, you will be at some point, and God wants you to prepare your mind and heart now for when that time comes. I would venture to say that each of us is grieving or mourning in some way, in some measure, this morning. Your sorrow may not be over a loved one who has died. Maybe you're mourning to some extent one of many other legitimate losses we encounter in life. Perhaps a bitter divorce. Maybe it's the unexpected or sudden end of a friendship. Perhaps a medical condition with no expected improvement. Or the peak and inevitable decline of your professional career. So this passage applies to us all. Uh, we're all in mourning to some extent over something because we live in a fallen world. We all experience the disappointment of living in a world marked by sin and its effects. But in our grieving, we're in good company. In fact, the prophet Isaiah foretold that Jesus would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And in the New Testament, we find in John chapter 11, the English Bible's shortest verse, Jesus wept. Jesus felt grief at the death of his close friend Lazarus. And later in his ministry, knowing that he would drink the cup of God's wrath in our place, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Our compassionate God meets us in our grief. God's purpose is not that we would deny or ignore our sorrows, but that we would find comfort in his promises amid our sorrows while we continue in this world. God gave us this passage because we Christians are tempted to grieve without hope when we neglect to keep in mind Christ's return and our eternal future with him. This future glory far outweighs all our present sorrows. Expecting this future changes the present. And this passage today is teaching us because Jesus will return, our griefs of many kinds can and should be brightened by a confident hope. Let's examine three reasons presented in this passage. Please keep it open and look at it. We'll be getting into uh, the verses particularly. There are three reasons why we Christians should grieve with hope. First, because we believe Jesus died and rose again, Christians can grieve with hope. Because we believe Jesus died and rose again, we can grieve with hope. Paul reasons with us in this passage using 
a lesser to greater argument here in verse 14, which begins, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, and he continues, Paul draws upon the Thessalonians' belief in the most basic and essential Christian teaching to persuade them and us that our resurrection is implied in Christ's resurrection. Because Jesus Christ has died and been raised, we are, who are united to faith, united to him by faith, will likewise die and will likewise rise from death. Jesus' death and resurrection are foundational to our faith. The Bible makes this abundantly clear. In 1 Corinthians 15, for example, his death and resurrection are the most important truths of the Christian life. And then without believing them, you cannot be saved from God's wrath for your sin. Christ's death and resurrection are foundational to our faith because these acts of Christ are utterly necessary to his effectiveness as our Savior. If Jesus had remained as the sinless God-man, but chose not to die and rise again, even those who trust in him would still be under the just condemnation of God. Jesus' death and resurrection justifies before God in the present. This is the most basic Christian gospel truth, and it was beneficial for Paul to bring it to the church's remembrance here in verse 14. Jesus' death in our place was a substitutionary atonement that was necessary to put us in favorable standing with God. Jesus, the righteous one, took upon himself the just anger of God towards sinners in order to save sinners, and we know this from many places in the scriptures. In Matthew 20, Jesus said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ's blood was shed to redeem or pay the just penalty for sinners who were then justified or accounted as righteous as a gift from God on account of Christ. Justification is a word the Bible uses to mean God's forgiveness of all our sins and God's declaration that we are fully righteous in his sight because of what Christ has done on our behalf to satisfy God's justice. But it's important to know that both Christ's death and his resurrection from death were necessary for our justification. Sometimes we think of only the death of Christ as putting us right with God, but he would have died without effect if he had not also been raised. Romans 4.25 makes this explicitly clear that Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. The resurrection of Christ proves that Jesus' death was a fully acceptable sacrifice to God, one that completely satisfied God's justice. And so death could not keep Jesus in the grave. And I believe this understanding is where Paul begins in his argument. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ accomplish our justification in God's eyes. All Christians hold to that by definition. Jesus is our substitute sacrifice, our substitute righteousness, and one whom God accepted as payment for our sins, as proven by his raising Jesus from the dead. But Jesus' death and resurrection do more than justify us, as Paul is reasoning here. Paul is saying Jesus' death and resurrection are also the prototype or model for what will happen to everyone who is united to Christ by faith. 
Paul reasons with the Thessalonians the way he did to the Roman church when he asked, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul is implying in verse 14 that the Thessalonians had an underrealized understanding of what Christ accomplished in his death and resurrection. Are you going through life like a Thessalonian? Christ secured God's favor for you in his death and resurrection. But in doing so, did Christ merely make possible your best life now? Some of you think frequently about life after death and the second coming of Christ. But others of us, perhaps especially those of us who are currently blessed with youth or good health or material abundance, may not consider all that Christ has secured in his death and resurrection. But God wants us to be ready for times of grief that will inevitably come from living as a fallen person in a fallen world. The implication of the cross, friend, is not only your justification, but also your glorification. Christ endured and overcame death, not only to pay for your sins, but also to bring you to where he is and to transform you to become as he is in a glorified body. Imagine you have a very wealthy and generous relative. One day he contacts you out of the blue and offers to send you on a vacation to an island paradise. You graciously accept his offer. He then prepays the cost of the vacation and sends you the receipt stamped paid in full to confirm that the payment was sufficient and accepted. The payment and the receipt make his favor toward you abundantly clear. He was not just talking, but he paid the price for you to go to the island and proved that it was paid in full. There's an adventure ahead that is worth looking forward to and getting excited about as the time draws nearer. In the same way, the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus are God's payment for our sin and his confirmation that the payment was accepted in full. They are God's declaration that he loves us and that he has taken away our sin and given us the righteousness of his Son. These blessings are of indescribable worth, but his death and resurrection will result in even more benefits when, on account of Christ, God will take us to paradise. As Paul wrote in Ephesians 2, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In the coming ages. It's not just about our best life now. Because where Jesus goes, we will go. Paul is impressing on the Thessalonians and thereby on us to consider all the benefits Christ has accomplished for us in his death and resurrection. So recognize the meaning of his death and resurrection for you, not only to justify you before a holy God, but to guarantee your destiny in a life to come. We are united to Christ in his death, and so we will be united to him in his resurrection. The New Testament describes Jesus Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As one commentator observes, the term for first fruits in Greek which is the language of the 
original new testament refers to a first sample of an agricultural crop that indicates the nature and quality of the rest of the crop therefore christ's resurrection body gives a foretaste of what the bodies of believers will be like when they are raised from death because he is the first fruits jesus is the first of many brothers and sisters who will be raised from the dead with a glorified resurrection body the death and resurrection of christ are the bedrock of all that god has done is doing and will do to bring us to eternal salvation but when you're honest with yourself do you typically think about christ's death and resurrection as something that accomplished only god's forgiveness christ's work has accomplished so much more and will accomplish so much more think of his death and resurrection as opening to you all the treasures of christ now and in the ages to come and you will be prepared to face any grief God has planned for you in this life. The second reason we can grieve with hope, because we will meet Christ bodily and remain with him forever, Christians can grieve with hope. Because we will meet Christ bodily and remain with him forever, we can grieve with hope. Our passage makes this point not through logical implication, as in the previous point, but in the form of a prophetic account. Paul reveals definite future events that appeal to our longings for eternal life as complete human beings and for unhindered fellowship with God. Paul calls us to have hope by telling us details about our future glory. First, Paul appeals to our longing to live forever as complete human beings human beings with bodies. Before we consider what he says about resurrection, notice that he mentions three times those who are asleep or who have fallen asleep in verses 13, 14, and 15. What are we to, re what are we to understand from this reference to sleep? Well, sleep and being asleep were polite ways of referring to death in first century Palestine, much as we speak of passing passing away, passing on. In fact, you might remember that the use of this euphemism caused confusion elsewhere in the New Testament, in John 11, at the raising of Lazarus, where Jesus said to the disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Now, every figure of speech has its limitations. So what does the Bible reveal about how we understand this period of so-called sleep, that is, the period after death and before the second coming of Christ, what theologians call the intermediate state? Some have advocated that it refers to soul sleep. Uh, that's the idea that after death, we are no longer conscious, but are rather in a state of complete inactivity and unconsciousness, similar to how we may experience sleep every night, or at least how we remember our sleep after we awake. But this idea is contradicted in Scripture and should be rejected. The Bible clearly teaches that for Christians, the moment of death is when we enter into the awareness 
of the presence of the Lord Jesus. We will be in his presence at that moment. In fact, Paul writes that we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 5. And he writes elsewhere about the prospect of his own death prior to the return of Christ. Paul writes, My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul was not suicidal or depressed. Rather, he knew that to be absent from the body was to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus. Even before the return of Christ, before the resurrection of all believers from their graves. So, if soul sleep were actually the believer's destiny, how could Paul have written these things? And how could Jesus himself have said to the criminal on the cross who believed in him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Soul sleep is an unbiblical concept that you and I should reject. The people of the first century Roman world used sleep as a euphemism or a polite term for death because a dead body appears to be asleep. But a Christian soul is very much alive and consciously in the presence of Christ, though separated from the body at death. And because the souls of believers are spiritually, though not bodily, with Christ after death, Paul can reason, as he does here in verse 14, that when Christ returns, God will bring from heaven with Jesus the disembodied souls of deceased Christians so that they can be reunited with their bodies. Our souls will be separated from our bodies for a time. But we will remain consciously in paradise with Christ until our souls are reunited with our restored and glorified flesh. Jesus said in John chapter 5, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of Man and come out. And this is why our bodies are to be treated with dignity, even in death. They still bear the image of God, and they will be renewed and re-inhabited by our souls on the day Jesus returns. Paul tells us about that day, starting in verse 16. Please look at it. The Lord Jesus will come from heaven in a way that is unmistakable. He will come with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And this truth is reinforced in Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the crowds, and every eye will see him. It will not be a private matter. You won't miss it if you're here for it. It will not be an event held in secret. Every eye will see him. The souls of the dead in Christ will be reunited with their earthly bodies, which are physically reconstituted and renewed. God knows where the molecules are and will no longer be subject to death and decay. Paul describes the great resurrection on the day of Christ's return to the Corinthian church in this way. He says, We shall not all sleep, but rather we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. But the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, 
Where is your sting? And then returning to our present passage in verse 17, those Christians who are alive at his coming will join their resurrected brothers and sisters, and their bodies will likewise be transformed into glorified, imperishable bodies. And we will all be caught up together in clouds of glory as a united church from every nation, tribe, and tongue. At this point, we will be prepared to meet the Lord Jesus face to face. Here in verse 17, Paul also encourages us by appealing to the believer's innate desire for fellowship with God. All followers of Christ of all ages will gather together to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. We were never meant to live life apart from the presence of the Lord, the personal nearness of the Lord. Our first parents enjoyed unhindered and personal fellowship with God, conversing with him directly in the Garden of Eden. We're told in Genesis 3.8 that after they had sinned for the first time, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They had the embodied presence of the Lord with them there in the garden, but as a result of their sin, they were ashamed and they hid from that presence. They hid from him. God then cast Adam and Eve away from his presence, away from the presence of his blessing in Eden. And history has never been the same. In fact, eternal hell is a separation from the presence of the Lord, from the presence of his blessing. 2 Thessalonians 1.9 tells us unbelievers will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It's hard to describe the presence of God because the Bible also teaches that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But his presence dwelt in the Israelite tabernacle and later the temple in a way that his presence did not dwell elsewhere. It's the presence of his blessing. And God's presence is with those who believe today through the indwelling Holy Spirit. We know God's presence is special. He dwells in and among believers today by his spirit, but we are not yet with him in a way we will be when Jesus returns. But when he returns, we will see him physically with our renewed physical eyes. As we're told in 1 John 3, 2, when he, that is Jesus, appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will be in his presence in body and spirit, and he will be in our presence in body and spirit. We shall see him as he is, and we will have glorified bodies like his glorified body. For the believer, being in the Lord's presence is the greatest bliss possible. We were meant to live in community with one another, and most of all with him, our creator, our savior, our God. Going back to an illustration I used earlier, the day of your prepaid vacation to an island paradise has arrived. You knew the vacation was coming, and anticipating it helped you get through some difficult days. And now that you have arrived, the island paradise 
is even more beautiful than you imagined. And what is now clear is that the loving relative who brought you there is not just any relative, but your loving father, whom you have known and loved and observed from afar. But you have never been as close to him as you are now. He actually owns the island. And you discover that being with him, being in his company and presence, is even more satisfying than any of the island's delightful scenery and experiences. What was once understood in part is now known and experienced in full. And by the way, you arrived on a one-way ticket. We struggle to imagine and try to describe what the glorious guaranteed future God has promised will be like. But the scriptures reveal enough to let us know we will be perfectly satisfied in what God has already planned for us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Revelation 21, 1-4 And as we said this morning, as King David wrote in Psalm 16, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. At your right hand, God, are pleasures forevermore. Christian, this is your future. It is a future of bliss, untainted by sin or its effects. You will be fully satisfied in the full presence of God's blessing. Every legitimate desire you have will be satisfied by living a fully human life, an embodied life in which you glorify God to the uttermost. This is your future through Christ, friend. My future through Christ. Think frequently of it, and your sorrows will be lightened. They will turn to gladness. Because we will meet Christ bodily and remain with him forever, Christians can grieve with hope. My final point. Because God keeps us in Christ, even through death, Christians can grieve with hope. Because God keeps us in Christ, even through death, we can grieve with hope. In Christ. It is a short two-word phrase with great importance. A phrase that appears frequently in Paul's letters. I'd encourage you to search your favorite Bible app or website for that phrase, in Christ, uh, this week. And just see how many times it pops up and in what context. Paul uses this phrase often. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, for example. And as we notice this phrase throughout the New Testament, grasp the scope of its meaning. And to summarize it, Paul's use of in Christ indicates a close and unbreakable relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, and particularly solidarity with Christ in his death and resurrection. And as we've already discussed, 
because he tasted death for us and overcame it, so he will bring us to be where he is and as he is in glorified bodies. We are united with him forever. I bring this detail up because we see the phrase here in verse 16 when Paul describes deceased Christian believers as the dead in Christ. Some of us, even mature believers, have anxiety about dying when we're honest. We may say to ourselves, my faith is so weak, I don't know whether it will carry me past my final breath into the experience of death and beyond. But friend, if you have genuine faith in Christ, it will. As Jesus said, your faith needs only to be the size of a mustard seed. Consider that the reason you're in Christ now is the same reason you will remain in Christ on your deathbed and beyond. Hear this from Ephesians 1, 3-6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Brother, sister, the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ when he returns. What God has begun, God will finish. If he placed you in Christ, you need not fear death, or that your faith will fail in death. Those who are living in Christ will become the dead in Christ, and then the resurrected in Christ. The great 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Depend on it, your dying hour will be the best hour you have ever known. Your last moment will be your richest moment. Better than the day of your birth will be the day of your death. It shall be the beginning of heaven, the rising of the sun, that shall go no more down forever. As we consider the unstoppable love, power, and purpose of God to save all those he's placed in Christ, we stop fearing death and look forward to the life ahead. Our expectations about the future profoundly influence the way we experience life today. And God has graciously given us specific and strong reasons in today's passage to have great and guaranteed expectations about the future if you are a believer in Christ. And friend, if you're not a Christian, or you aren't sure, please speak with one of the elders here, or speak with me, or perhaps the person who brought you here this morning. We want to answer your questions. We want you to share in this confident hope, now and forever. For those of us who are Christians, we have a clear application given to us in this passage at the very end, in verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. God is calling not just elders or Bible teachers to study and use these profound and deep truths, but all of us. Often, our conversation as believers is about things of earth, and there's a place for that. 
But in order to live life with hope, and especially to grieve with hope, we need to speak genuine reminders to one another about our future in Christ. In his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth, precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Living in expectation of the future God has promised brings us a confident hope in the present life. A confident hope that suits those who claim to trust in a resurrected and returning Savior. So let us encourage ourselves and one another by raising our expectations, expectations given to us directly by God's own word. May we grieve in this world after the manner of Jesus, but not as others do who have no hope. Let us pray together. Merciful God, we thank you that you are with us in the sorrows of life. We thank you that we have a hope in Christ that outweighs all sorrows. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you that you have promised that whoever believes in you, though he die, will yet live. We pray, Maranatha, return soon. And in the meantime, would you grow us as your people? Would you cause us to think frequently about and hope confidently in your promised return? Father, prompt my brothers and sisters in this precious congregation to encourage one another sincerely with words you've given us about the future you've promised. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.